Hello and welcome to Weathering the Storm, a podcast to help us weather the storms of life by sustaining an unwavering faith in God. I'm your host, Drew Suttles. I thank you for taking some time out to spend with me today. We are now in season two, and today we come to episode seven, where we are striving to weather the storm by maintaining. This season, I've been uh, privileged to have some guests on my show, and today we have another special guest with us, and that is Michael Clark. My brother Michael and I went to the Memphis School of Preaching together, and we've kept in contact and, and stayed close even after school. And so appreciate him being with me today, and I want to turn things over to him, let him introduce himself, talk a little bit about his family, his work, and his podcast as well. Yeah, thanks, Drew, for having me. I really appreciate the work that you do, and I've enjoyed getting to see you grow in your podcasting because I know you called me when you first talked about doing this and were asking me a ton of questions, and I'm not even as proficient as you thought I probably was, but uh, it's been a it's been a joy to watch uh, you do this and to see how it's been effective in the kingdom, and I'm really appreciative to you for that as well. Uh, I was a wraparound when Drew and I went to school, so I had six months to go, and we probably had one of the hardest six months because of Brother Don Walker, um, at least for me. I know it got worse for y'all and, and John, but it's also been some of the most rewarding classes that we had. I look back on those notes, and even for the stuff we're going to talk about today, I was looking at some of the notes he gave us last night, and I just kind of kept sitting there thinking about it. As hard as it was, I'm glad we went through that together, and I'm glad he helped us in that way. It's, it's just been so beneficial. And I graduated from school in January of 2017 and got a job in Somerville, Tennessee, work with Ryan Manning. He's my co-preacher. We rotate sermons each Sunday and uh, teach classes as well, and so that's been working really well. Actually, next month will be my fourth year with the congregation because um, I started in September of 2016. And uh, so it's it's hard to believe it's been four years, you know, since I've been in school almost and uh, been there for four years. I just actually this May graduated uh, from Amherst University with a uh, bachelor's of science ministry in the Bible and uh, got a podcast. I'm, I uh, do a podcast called Far Better, where we look to make sure that our lives are on par with the scriptures today so that our eternity will be far better. Uh, that's what Paul talked about in Philippians one twenty three. being with God, being with Jesus was better than being on earth. And so kind of have, helping people to understand the, the true value in having a spiritual life after we die, what, what it all means. And so um, I do a program with Wayne Rogers on GBN called What Would You Do If?, where we talk about different biblical scenarios and what type of things might come up and how would you handle it. And uh, I just really enjoy getting to do all these things. And the last thing I do is I, I blog a lot. Um, I blog for three different publications. You you and I blog for one of them, The Community Messenger, and that's a great work that Jameson's doing over there in Mississippi. Uh, I've got one that I've been doing for two years now called Perspectives of a Bond Servant, and that's currently under new leadership. And so they're currently working on getting that back up and running to the speed of the new leadership. And then I've been privileged to write a little bit for the Gospel Journal here lately. And so it's a blessing to be able to work in the kingdom and such a such an honor to do stuff like this with you today. Yeah, man. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful for you and the example you've set. And I mentioned thankful for your family, uh, Brother BJ and uh, his director, you know, at the Memphis School of Preaching and Brother TJ teaching us. Uh, so just thankful for, for all of you and, and for all the tireless effort of going in and, and working for the Lord. So thank you for being with me today. I'm looking forward to this topic. As I mentioned, as we began a few moments ago, today we're, the topic is weathering the storm by maintaining. And so what we want to do as we begin is uh, define our terms. And so, Michael, what does it mean to maintain? There's three different definitions that I found in the New Oxford Dictionary. I'm weird. I'm not a big Webster's fan. Uh, I use the New Oxford Dictionary. And the three definitions are, number one, to cause or enable a condition or state of affairs to continue. You're able to maintain a, a something at the same level or rate. So prices at a movie theater, you can maintain those prices by doing X. Uh, keeping a building in good condition, you're maintaining it, you're keeping it in working condition. Uh, the second definition was to provide with necessities for life or existence. 
The allowance covers the basic costs of maintaining a, a, a child, for example. We both have children. Uh, you have more children than I do, and so you understand what it takes to maintain those children's lives and keeping them fed and keeping them properly growing. And then it talks about stating something strongly to be the case. You know, he's always maintained his innocence. He's been strongly telling everyone that would listen, I'm innocent, I didn't do these things. And uh, basically, though, if we were to give it a biblical definition, it's overcoming this worldly life by holding on to Christ who is our actual life. And if you look at Colossians 3, 1 1 through 4, the Bible says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, and then we usually stop right there. We usually just say, okay, well, you got to set your mind on things above, but we miss the context where Paul continues and says, the reason you do this is, verse 3 and 4, you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so he talks about that idea of maintaining your spirituality by focusing on the Father, not on the world. Yeah, and that's what enables us to maintain. And all the words that you just gave and, and those examples are really good. And I, I just kind of looked up a few and, and uh, different definitions. To maintain is to persevere, to press on, to continue, or to sustain against opposition. And so really you can tie that in spiritually as well. And that's kind of the direction we're going to go in today as we think about some examples in Scripture of those who were able to maintain And then as we look at three different ways that we can maintain spiritually uh, to help us weather the storm. So I appreciate uh, you looking into those definitions, and I believe that'll help us moving forward to have a a working knowledge of what that word actually means. And so with those thoughts in mind, we want to look at some examples uh, in the Scripture of those who are able to weather the storm by maintaining. And our goal in this segment is to look at uh, two examples from the Old Testament and then two examples from the New Testament. And I believe all four of these will, uh, will serve as great examples. And the first one we'll look at is that of Job. And so, Michael, what comes to your mind when you think about Job and the fact that he maintained? It's kind of interesting. Those three definitions we talked about, he, he really held to two of them. Uh, you have the idea of cause or enable something to continue. His Christianity, as far as his belief in God, we talk about Christianity in the New Testament, but the only thing that would be likened to that in the Old Testament is having a covenant relationship with God. He had that, and he maintained that so well that the only reason the devil even wanted to affect him was his his thesis statement was, if you take all this away from Job, he won't maintain his relationship with you anymore. He'll, he'll immediately cause that relationship to be severed. So God says, okay, you go and do that. And then you look at all of the necessities for life and existence that Job had been given. He maintained them very well. He was a very wealthy man, and even with his children. He maintained their lives to where they were grown and they were living, and then he loses all of that. And he actually does the third one, too, now that I think about it, because he's maintaining his innocence. He strongly says, look, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a maid? And when he's talking about his friend saying, well, you must have done something wrong, Job, to have deserved all this. And he says, why would I? Why did I do? I'm an innocent man. And yet he's dealing with all of this strife and trouble. And yet in like Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. In verse 25 of chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. That's not to say that Job didn't question God. We do have a section of Scripture where Job says, you know, God, I don't understand what you're doing. And God answers him in such a fashion that the Bible says Job answered by saying, I'm going to cover my mouth so that I don't say something foolish because I've been misinformed about how this life works. And James 5.11 says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Some people would read Job and they would say, well, God allowed that to happen, therefore God did it. No, those two statements don't work together. God allowed it to happen, but the devil's who did it to Job. And the only reason he did it to Job was Job had such a good relationship with God the Father. And that relationship continued even past his, his accusation of God when he was kind of put back in his place, if you will, He goes back and has a better relationship with God than probably even before this happened. And what does God do? He blesses him for maintaining that faith 
and restores his wealth and restores his his lifestyle back to him. And that's that's something we don't think about is Job is actually, the more I think about it, a great picture of New Testament Christianity. Because here's what happens. We're blessed by God in that we're given an opportunity to have a covenant relationship with him by Jesus' death, Acts 20 and 28. And then we have this opportunity to go through life with trials and difficulties. But if we maintain, we have these blessings given to us, which is heaven. That's exactly what Job did. He maintained, and at the very end, God blessed him. Those are some great thoughts, especially that passage in James. I was going to allude to that as well. Is uh, The two examples that James gives, you have Job and Elijah, and mm-hmm. both of them maintaining, mm-hmm. like you said. And so you think about Job. Uh, I mentioned in our last episode last week about David uh, had to weather the storm, but you think about Job as well. You talk about a man who had to weather the storm, multiple storms coming his way. You look at those first two chapters, and it's overwhelming how much he went through. But you mentioned that he maintained it. In fact, in Job 2, verse 3, as well as verse 9, it says he maintained his integrity. You remember his wife coming at him and, and every, and it, like you said, his friends coming at him. But he is the, the, the perfect example of what it means to maintain your integrity, to, to maintain your focus. And as you said, at the end of the book, you see where God blessed him. I remember Brother Kate's telling us Job didn't have the end of the book of Job. Right. He didn't, right. <laughs> didn't see what was going to happen, but, but he did maintain that faith. And, and at the end of the book, everything kind of comes full circle for Job. So uh, we wanted to use him as the first example as one who, who maintained. And all those passages you mentioned, I had the same thing. So uh, <laughs> you described it so well. We're going to move on to our next example. <laughs> uh, in fact, we're going to come to the example of Amos. Now, more people might be uh, more familiar with Job than they are Amos, but uh, Amos is somebody that, that I look up to. I don't know about you, but he's one of my heroes uh, as a preacher. I look to Amos. And what I'd like to do is, is to read this really fast, and then uh, we can talk about uh, how Amos was able to weather the storm by maintaining. I'm going to read Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, out of the New King James Version. Of course, to set the, the, st- the context, if you will, you have Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam. And we know about Jeroboam, or the king of Israel, that one in the in northern, uh, northern king there. Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. So everything he was saying against Jeroboam and those in the northern kingdom, they didn't want to hear that. Amaziah, verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel. It's the king's sanctuary. It's the royal residence. So picking up in verse 14, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder, a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in the defiled land. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. You talk about some courage right there from Amos uh, and, and how the world needs that kind of courage uh, in pulpits today uh, to stand up and say, this is what you say. This is what the world says, but here's what God has to say. And so what comes to your mind as you think about Amos maintaining what exactly does he maintain and how does that help him to weather this storm you think a lot about the new testament examples we have of the apostles and how they stood in front of powerful men and said we will preach and teach and like peter said in acts chapter 5 we can't help but preach and teach the things we've seen and heard and yet we we sometimes forget you have old testament prophets like amos saying the same thing, just in a different way. And he's saying it to someone who has the authority, has the power to take his life. And we talk about Esther, we talk about other people who, to stand up for what's right. But Amos, I think it's interesting when you look at Amos chapter 4, and you see all of the things that we find that God had tried to get his people to come back, 
and yet it didn't work. You know, you've got the cleanness of teeth. It's not that God took him to the dentist, but he, he basically made a famine in the land and said, you're not going to eat until I allow you to eat, and they didn't return. He withheld the rain, and there were three months. Uh, while there were still three months to the harvest, he made it would rain on one but not on the other city, and then one part would be rained upon, and where it didn't rain, that part withered. And so two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. And so he's doing all of these things. I blasted you with blight, verse 9, and mildew. Your gardens increase, yet you've not returned to me. And then you get to chapter 7, and Amos has told the people this. He's told them this is what God tried, and, and they could know he's right. God did do that. We were there. We witnessed it. We experienced it. And I love how the, the chapter ends here in verse 12. It says, Therefore thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, makes the morning darkness, treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name. And Amos is, if you will, he's kind of caught in the middle. The people and God are the ones that have a quarrel, and yet God is sending Amos to handle it. And it's not that God's not capable of handling it, but God always sent prophets to handle the word that he wanted them to, to have. And there's not going to be any difference here. And you think of all the courage that Amos had to have to say, no, I'm, I'm going to prophesy. And I wasn't a prophet. Look, <laughs> I wasn't a prophet. I wasn't the son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder. And here I am, the Lord taking me out, and I followed the, as I was following the flock, and he says, go prophesy. And you kind of get the impression what he says there is, when God tells you to prophesy, you prophesy. You know, and it's almost the exact same situation with Peter, where he's standing before the men, the most powerful men in that city, being told the exact same thing, and he says, we're going to prophesy. And I, I think that we're getting to a point in this country where we're so blessed. I just finished this article for the Community Messenger on suffering, and I looked up the top you know, 10 countries when it comes to suffering. America's not even in the top 50 when it comes to suffering for religious problems religious difficulties. And on the on the point scale, I only listed five in the article, but there were 10 listed, and we weren't even close to those things. But we might get back to that at some point. And I think the sad nature of the world is we have a lot of Christians in this country, especially, they say that they're like Amos, and they talk a really big game. And then the moment that they have to, they run. And I remember we talked about Brother Walker earlier. I remember Brother Walker saying that he was a lot like Amos. And he always talked about himself being the Amos of the Bible, this guy that, you know, he would be just a sheep breeder and he's just, you know, he's going to do what the God, what God says. And uh, I can hear his voice when I read Amos because it's, it's the same mentality. And you think of all of the times that we witnessed Brother Walker and other men that we were taught by stand up for what's right, stand up for the truth not compromise on what the scriptures teach. And sometimes it's done at great cost. You know, there are times where you draw a line in the sand and you say, brother, I love you, but you're not teaching the truth. You're not living right. I can't hold to that. And they might say, well, you don't get to tell me how I live. The Bible says that I do. It, it tells me that I can instruct you. And that's exactly what Amos is saying. And I'm not going to stop. And I think a lot of us would be more benefited, more benefited in this world, if that's even the right way to say that, to be like Amos and think like Amos and speak like Amos and just say, I've, I've gotten to a point in preaching where I've started to tell people, I don't necessarily like that this is what the teaching is, but I love the Word of God, therefore I'm going to teach it. And that's, there's a difference between liking something and loving something. Loving something, knowing that it has value, means I'm going to teach it even if it's unpleasant. Do I like that that's going to cause difficulties for a lot of people in the world when I say, whosoever marries a man that cannot be married has committed adultery, like Matthew 19.9 says. No, I don't like that at all. And there have been situations that I've faced where that's happened. And you have to deal with that, and you have to look at these people's eyes and watch as they're heartbroken that we can't be married. And yet you have to tell them what the Scriptures teach. You have to maintain that doctrine. And I've started to just tell people, I love the Word of God enough to follow it, but that doesn't mean that I like what it has to say at times because it means that people are going to be hurt. But in truth, the only way to get to heaven is by maintaining that Christianity. And like we're talking about in this whole episode here, we were never promised something easy. 
we were promised something that if we wanted it, we'd have to give stuff up in order to get it. Yeah, and, and, and I appreciate that you brought out some, some New Testament updates, as Brother Moser used to say, there with Peter. You know, Peter and, and the Christians in the first century, think about all that they went through, and yet they still had a purpose. They, ha- they didn't have a choice, like you said. When you sign up, uh, when you enlist in the Lord's army, if you will, you obey the gospel, you become a child of God. There's no turning back, and you get everything right. that comes with that. Right. Uh, I think about, you mentioned Peter, First Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Well, what's that mean? Speak like the prophet spoke. How did mm-hmm. they speak? <laughs> it mm-hmm. wasn't about them. Thus says the Lord. Uh, the book right. of Jeremiah, for example, over right. 500 times, uh, a statement about this is coming from the Lord. And so we have to do the same thing today. We have his inspired word. Second Timothy 4.2, you mentioned that. Even when it's not popular, even if you don't like it, we still have to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine to, to be instant right. in season, out of right. season. And so Amos serves as that great example, even as we make the application today. We did the same thing with Job. No, we're not going to face, you know, the same storms as Job did. We're not, you know, to be that wealthy, the greatest man in the East, to lose his, his wealth, to lose his family, to lose, you know, his wife to come at him like that. Uh, maybe even to lose his sanity a little bit as his friends keep coming at him and, and all that he went through. And yet he maintained and he was blessed for it. Amos mm-hmm. could have easily thrown mm-hmm. in the towel. He could have said, well, like you said, here's a man who can take my life. I'm just going to go back home. I'll just keep to myself. Sadly, that's what happens today. But we see both of these men of God maintaining their cause, maintaining their purpose, Amos maintaining his composure, saying, you know what? I've got a job to do. I have a duty as a child of God, I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to maintain the cause. Well, you think about it too. We have, we're, we're nowhere close to the exact same situation as Amos, where we're, we're not standing in front of the president of the United States telling him all of these things. I, it would be great if we could. Uh, no matter who's in office, it'd be a wonderful blessing to preach the gospel to them because everyone needs the gospel. But to think we we compromise on God's word and speaking the truth to people for far less. People that can't take our lives, they can't throw us into prison, they just won't like us anymore. And like I said earlier, I've started to say in some of my sermons, I love you enough to hurt your feelings. And there's a, there's a reason you have to be willing to do that because truth sometimes hurts. And here's Amos having to tell the truth in front of a man who could kill him. And today we've got many people in the church that they won't tell the truth to someone that just won't like them. Because they just don't want anybody to not like them. And then we want to get in front of the assembly, so to speak, and and sing about the idea of loving the Lord and victory in Jesus. And we don't really understand what those terms mean because we don't really have it. It's a good point. And, and it's uh, something that, that all of us need to, to think about. If we're going to do this, that to, to realize, like you said, we're, we're not promised it to be easy. Uh, we're not doing this to be light necessarily either. Uh, we're doing this because we're trying to please God. And if we ever lose sight of that, we're going to miss it. Mm-hmm. And so you look at all these examples, not even just these two we've discussed, but all throughout Scripture, time and time again, you know, men are having to lead their comfort zone. And God calls them to do that. Well, right, the same right. is true today. Um, right. So we have to comfort the afflicted, but also afflict the comforted uh, and let them know that, you know, you can't stay in neutral spiritually. There's no place for that in the kingdom. Uh, we, there's no place for spiritual complacency. That's what Jude talked about. Some you save with, you know, with compassion. You're you're kind to them, and you you say, I, I understand this isn't easy, but this is what the scriptures teach, and I hope and pray that we can come to an understanding on this. But he continues and says, others you save with fear. You know, you you pull them out of the fire. You don't look at someone on fire and go. I'll get to him eventually. Uh, you have to you have to use some urgency there, and so maintaining Christianity is not just talking about we attend faithfully on Sundays and Wednesdays, and we're at the lectureships and the gospel meetings and the VBSs of the world and the youth devos. It means that when we're faced with a situation like these two men were faced with, that we hold fast to what the scriptures teach. Exactly, and both of those examples, you know, of course, they didn't have the full. Uh, inspired word they had it directly you know from the spirit there but we have it today we have the fully revealed word you know second peter 1 3 2 timothy 3 16 and 17 we have the, the power of god through the word and we we can't ever be ashamed of it 
Right. Both of these examples, two great examples from the scriptures of those who maintain what it looked like for them, but also we can gain encouragement from that as we strive to weather the storms that we may face. Well, now we want to come to the New Testament and look at two examples. Now, Job and Amos, you know, like I said, well-known, perhaps Amos, not as much as Job, but these next two examples, I believe everybody's going to know who we're talking about. And the first one we'll talk about is that uh, of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've got a, a, a lot of scriptures came to mind when I thought about Paul and the word maintain. But I want to turn things over to you, let you let's start us off here. What passages come to mind and what examples can you share with our audience about how Paul was able to maintain? I, uh, when I went to school, I, uh, about two months in, started to get really sick, and I had no idea what was going on, and so we go to the doctor, and that was like a five-month process at that point, figuring everything out. Finally figured out I have Crohn's disease, and so I've dealt with that from that point forward. I'm finally on a medicine that's really working for me, uh, and so I'm, I'm blessed in that regard to have a, a medication that can work because it took five years to find it. And so I'm thankful to finally be able to, to kind of get back to a normal life as much as possible. But I look at the idea of suffering that you can't really explain, and I look at the idea of suffering for your faith, and I see the difference between the two more than I ever did before. I can't explain why I got Crohn's disease. It, it's probably genetic from everything that I've read. Um, my mother's father was not around. Uh, her stepfather, my, my poppy, he's a really great man. We love him dearly, but he's not her biological father. If I were a betting man, I would imagine I got it from his side of the family, my mom's biological father. But I can't explain why I got it. It's just something that happened with my genetics. I can't explain Paul's suffering, though, and it's probably... Honestly, outside of Jesus, who in the New Testament suffered more than Paul? And who, and especially when you think about all that he gave up, too. You, you look at Jesus, and I know we're going to talk to, about him in a minute, but just the parallel real quick. Jesus gave up a home in heaven where he was equal with God, and he comes down to earth, and he lives a life as a servant, and he dies on the cross. You look at Paul, and Paul would write in certain passages where he says, look, I'm, I'm Hebrew of the Hebrews. If anybody wants to have the qualifications of a Jewish man, they'd look to me and say, that's the type of Hebrew I'd want to be. And yet he gave all of that up. He says, I counted all those things lost for Christ. And what did he get for it? Well, 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen and following talks about that very idea as he, as he leans into the idea of, you want to be like me? Well, I gave all that up. And then he starts talking in verse 22, or I'm sorry, verse 24, all of the things that he suffered. You know, the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. They would do that because in case they miscounted, the law states they couldn't go more than 40. And so they'd sometimes say, we'll go to 39 just in case we missed one or we hit him twice and we didn't realize it. And he says that happened to him five times, three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Three, day, three times he was shipwrecked. And a buddy of mine years ago said, if I got on an airplane and it crashed once, and I got on the same type of airplane and it crashed I'm not getting on at a third, and yet Paul gets on three ships that shipwreck. He spends a night and day in the deep. He's in perils of journeys often, waters, robbers, his own countrymen, of the Gentiles, of the city, the wilderness, of the sea, among false brethren, weariness, toil, sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst, fastings often, cold and nakedness. Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. And he says, who, am, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? And then he talks about, if I must boast, I'll boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And then you have another situation in the very next chapter where he talks about his thorn in the flesh that he was given to tempt him. And he's given this thorn in the flesh. And all of that is to try to convince him to not serve Christ. What do people think when we study the, the Old Testament like Job? If we can get him where his faith is, he'll stop having that faith. When we talk about the New Testament, it's the same M.O. Look, the devil doesn't have new tricks. He just has new ways of introducing the same old, same old. And that's what he does in the New Testament. He says, well, if Paul's not going to you know, persecute the people of the way like he was, then I'll just start persecuting him. And I don't think we talk about this a lot. The devil was just fine with Saul. It was Paul he had a problem with. Saul would, 
Saul was a great soldier of the devil, and he didn't know it, but he was because he was persecuting those of the way. He's doing all of these things to cause problems to the church, and then he changes, and the devil thinks, great, I've lost one of my best soldiers. How can I get him back? I'll try to, t- I'll try to get him exactly as he was getting other people, and I'll persecute him and persecute him and persecute him. And yet Paul says, I rejoice in these things. When I'm weak, I'm strong. I, this isn't a problem. I mean, I don't like it, sure, but I can make it. And you talk about the idea of maintaining, and I know you've got, you know, Second Timothy four six through eight. That's the that's the epitome of doing that. But also Hebrews chapter twelve. I don't I don't know if you're in the camp that believes Paul wrote Hebrews or not. I know we were given some information in school about it could have been Paul uh, if he did write that in Hebrews chapter twelve after Hebrews eleven. The writer says, we have this great cloud of witnesses, so lay down every weight and run, and don't let anything keep you from making it. And that's the whole point, that maintaining, getting to the finish line. And I can't think of a better New Testament example outside of Jesus than Paul. No, I can't either. <laughs> I, I remember Brother Bland telling us, he said, you can't keep a man like Paul down. You put him in prison, he writes the Bible. Uh, and that yeah. stuck with me. Uh, you know, the yeah. book of Philippians, a treatise on joy riding from behind prison bars. That, that's so powerful, and that's one who understood what it meant to maintain. And so Job, Amos, and now Paul, all three of these individuals faced unbelievable storms, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of discouragement, and yet they maintained. Here's a, a few passages that I had. You mentioned 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. You look at that language, we could say Paul says, I've maintained. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what he's getting at. I've maintained. I've, I've stayed the course. First uh, Corinthians 9, 24 and following, you know, I disciplined my body so I won't become disqualified. He, he didn't allow these different things, like you mentioned, the, the things that Satan was trying to throw at him. He didn't let that stop him. He, he didn't want to lose a chance uh, on gaining heaven. That's what it was all about for him. And then Philippians 3, 14 and following. You know, forgetting those things which he had, like you opened up about, and that's exactly what, where my mind went as well. He had it all. He had the prestige. He had everybody coming to him. A Hebrew, the Hebrews, a Pharisee, the Pharisee, uh, you know, the top of his class, if you will, under the feet of Gamaliel. He was willing to give all that up because he understood, you know, if I'm going to be able to suffer for Christ, that, that's what I want. Because ultimately to bring glory to God is my whole purpose. So I forget those things which are behind. He says, I press toward the mark. Again, that phrase could be summarized to say he maintained. And so, as you said, and I believe exactly like you said wholeheartedly, outside of Jesus, Paul's the greatest example we have of one who maintained his cause, maintained his focus, and didn't let anything stop him from bringing glory to God with his life. But that does bring us to the final example, and that is, of course, of Jesus. Uh, you want to talk about someone who had to maintain someone who willingly maintained for us. And you mentioned that earlier, that he left where we're trying to go. He humbled himself and came to this earth and and went through so much. So you and I and everyone who's listening today could have the hope of eternal life through him. So, Michael, I want to turn it back to you as we close out these examples of those in Scripture. What passages come to mind, what events come to mind as we see Jesus maintaining? Well, I think of the gospel accounts that we have the most, including all of the adversaries that he faced. And I'm going to speak very generically as far as the accounts themselves because I don't have them all memorized. But you think about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where the Pharisees and the Sadducees constantly try to trip him up. Mark chapter 10 is a good example of this, but not with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Mark 10, where that rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, "'Good teacher.'" What do I need to do? And, and Jesus says, are you going to put me on the same playing field as God? You know, why are you calling me good? There's only one person, that, the one deity that's good, and that's God. You, are you putting me on the same level as God? You need to understand that that's what you're saying. And then after Jesus tells him, this is what you need to do, the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because he had many great possessions. And while it was not enough for the rich young ruler to call him God, he actually said that God wasn't enough for him that my possessions worth are worth more 
than God, than to be able to have a covenant relationship with Jesus. And you think about John chapter 6, verses 66 and following, where Jesus says, are you also going to go away because he's lost many disciples after he's been teaching and preaching these hard truths, these hard sayings? And you just you just ask yourself, how did he not quit? You, you, you think about, and then you have to look in the mirror and go, because of me, because of you, because of anyone listening to this and all the people in the world— Every day that Jesus woke up was an opportunity for him to quit. Every moment of his life was an opportunity for him to quit. And we sometimes sing the song 10,000 Angels. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to scrap this project. The world is too wicked. They're not worthy of salvation. And they're not even, they're not even going to change. And yet he still died for all of us. And you think about all of that. I, I've done things before that were stupid years ago when I was a kid. My brother and sister were fighting my mom and dad had a pair of kitchen scissors, and I was like nine. And you know, nine-year-old logic is not the best. And so I took these kitchen scissors, and I held them up toward my, my pointer finger, and I said, I'm going to cut my finger if y'all don't stop fighting. Well, they called my bluff, and I thought, I'll just make them think I cut my finger. And I didn't realize how close I was with those scissors. I sliced a huge chunk of my fingerprint off. And when I watched that thing fall to the floor, I thought, whoops. And then I had some pretty bad pain and a couple of weeks of trying to get that thing to heal. And if you look at my my two pointer fingers, you can tell which one I did it to because the fingerprint didn't come back like it was before. It's, it's the same fingerprint, but just in a little bit of a different shape now because of the scar. Well, that hurt. And I didn't do it intentionally because I thought I was just going to make them think that. I did it. I cannot imagine laying my body down to be scourged, you know, having my body put put into a position to be scourged willingly. I can't imagine then being allowed, allowing people to then take that body that's already been beaten to a bloody pulp and throwing it down onto a cross and then nailing me to it, hoisting me up and laughing and mocking and scorning me for hours on end for people that, for the most part, couldn't care less than they already did about me and about what I've done for them. I cannot imagine what went through Jesus' mind. I know we have pictures of it in Matthew where he talks about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a direct quote from Psalm 22 and verse 1. But I cannot imagine doing the same thing because I'm not him. I'm not God. I'll never be on par with God in that regard. And I think about the level of maintaining, and then we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And whatever Christ did is obviously worthy of imitation, and there I have it. If I'm going to be a good child of God, I have to maintain as Jesus maintained. And no one's going to crucify me right now in this country, but what if they did? Why why should that change anything? I did a suffering seminar for the congregation where I preach, and one of the lessons I wrote for that was, why not you? It was the very last lesson that we covered. And I just said, I get a little frustrated with people in the world today that act like they can't suffer, that they can't deal with difficulties in life. And we went through some of these examples like Paul, and Jesus was the main example. And I said, look, if Jesus can suffer that way, willingly, having done nothing wrong, we don't need to be crying about the suffering that we face that's nowhere near the same. And if he can maintain that example, even to the point of death, so can we. And so those are the kind of things that I think about when it comes to Jesus maintaining is, I don't understand why I was, you know, someone he wanted to to spare. I think a lot of us in the church can understand that and realize we can't explain it. But thanks be to God that it was the case. Yeah, and, and you know, you painted that picture for us. And, and, and as you're listening to that, just picturing in your mind how at any moment, like you said, Jesus could have, I'm not doing this. You know, and, and a lot of history tells us that a lot of people would have died during that scourging. Mm-hmm. You know, John 19, 1, Pilate had him scourged. That's, and then it moves on. It's like, wow, there's a lot there. He, he, most people would have died. What kept him going? Well, it was you and me, and mm-hmm. it was the world. Mm-hmm. But it was also doing the will of his Father. And I think John eight twenty nine is one of the most powerful passages uh, to, to summarize, if you will, the life of Jesus. I do always those things that please the Father. Nobody else can mm-hmm. say that. But Jesus always did it. Whatever the cost was, he was willing to pay it. 
to please his Father, to glorify him, and because of the love he had for mankind. And he's the one who created us, according to Colossians right, chapter right. 1 and John 1. But you think about Jesus who emptied himself, he became a servant, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, humbled himself even to the point of death. And I believe it's important that the Holy Spirit revealed even to the point of the cross. You know, what didn't just say he did it to death, but even to that magnitude that he would be nailed to the cross for you and me. Also comes to mind 1 Peter 2, 21 and following. And you mentioned that. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how he suffered. Peter said, he's given us an example that we should follow in his steps. Jesus suffered. If we're going to follow him, we're going to suffer. In fact, Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him follow me daily. Let him deny himself. So that requires us to maintain. And and we've got to look to the example of Jesus. He was able to weather the storm by maintaining. He kept his mind focused on doing the will of the Father. And the love that he had for me, for you, for the world, motivated him to keep going. And, And like you said, thanks be to God that he did. I preached a sermon on Luke 9 recently on taking up your cross, and when I was studying that passage of Scripture, I, I'll be honest with you, I'd never thought of this before, but duh, it just kind of hits you when you read what it actually means, and Jesus is talking about an instrument of death, and and today we have the, the crosses that we wear on necklaces, and there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it does kind of romanticize what shouldn't be romanticized. Jesus was not put on a gold cross. It was a very bloodied instrument. It was a very harsh instrument. And we think about when Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. He's literally telling these people, put yourself to death every day. Put yourself to death every day to follow me. And he's in that same chapter talking about deny your father and mother, deny your family, deny your friends. You follow me. And people don't want to hear that today. You've got so many examples of of stories that can be told of people that, I just can't do that if my mom and dad didn't do it. I just can't follow God if you're telling me my mom and dad are lost or my brother or sister are lost. And Jesus is literally telling these people, you have to be willing to put yourself to death. And then you, you pair that with Colossians 3. Being a Christian means you have died. And when you die, you walk in newness of life. You don't go back to the old thing. You don't get to do the same old, same old. And there's Jesus with Paul, you know, combining two ideas together of taking up my cross, denying myself and following Jesus, being willing to do what he did. And we're going to fail at that at times. We're not going to be perfect, but being willing to actually say, I'll die for you. And if that means I give up my worldly possessions, I'll do what the rich young ruler did. And if that means I give up my worldly friends, I'll I'll do that. I'll do whatever it takes to have a relationship with you. And that's, and that's a good way to, to really summarize all these examples. Whatever it takes, I'm going to maintain. And yeah. so that's what it means. Yeah. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do it if that's what God has asked me to do. And so we've looked at two examples in the Old Testament, two examples in the New, and all four of those examples, uh, great, great examples for us, uh, the ultimate being, of course, Jesus. But now we want to go into our, our final section of this episode and we're going to look at three words, and hopefully these are three takeaways that our listeners can take with them that will help them to maintain. And these three words are faith, focus, and fruitfulness. So we need to maintain our faith, our focus, and our fruitfulness. Let's begin with that first one, Michael. Maintain our faith. What does that look like? What does that mean? Faith is something that can be lost. Uh, We have numerous passages that talk about keeping the faith, but let's, for the sake of this podcast, replace the word keeping with maintaining. And let's talk about, because that's essentially what it means. And I've got one example of the Old Testament that came to mind, and then I've got some other scriptures just topically. But you look at Daniel and his friends, those that were taken into captivity, and Daniel is a young man by everyone's estimation, possibly around 18 years old at the most, I think, when he was taken into captivity. And the very first chapter gives us opposition. And not opposition of, hey, you're going to do this because we want you to do it, but opposition over faith. Daniel chapter 1 is Nebuchadnezzar's diet. 
You're going to eat like the king's men eat. And then Daniel says, look, this would be a problem when it comes to our faith, what God requires. And so he speaks up. Again, like we talked about with Amos and with uh, Esther and some of these other people standing in front of people who could kill them and saying, we don't need to be doing that. And so they have a test. They're approved, and it's find out, oh, God's way works better. And so they implemented that. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and Daniel goes and tells him what it means. You think about that real quick, just a side note for our country today. Showing respect to who has rule over you. He calls Nebuchadnezzar king. He shows him respect, and he then tells him exactly what the dream meant. Why would he do that if he didn't at least respect the office that that king held? And so he, even though this man was a wicked man, was a man who was sinful and didn't have good things going on in his life by the way that we read about Babylon, Daniel was willing to teach him what God wanted him to know by this dream. Daniel chapter 3, you have his friends this time being told to worship a false god when the music plays, and they denied doing such a thing, and they're thrown into a furnace, and yet they're able to come out of it because they've maintained Daniel 4, there's a second dream. Nebuchadnezzar gets a little too big for his britches, as we sometimes say, and he's driven out like a beast of the field. Daniel chapter 5, you have Belshazzar's dream. And here's Daniel telling him, you've been weighed and measured and you've been found wanting. And you're going to have your kingdom taken this night, and that's exactly what happened. And then we get to Daniel 6, the last real big opposition that I can find in the, in the book that I at least found when I was studying for this, and he's thrown into the lion's den because he maintained his faith. The first six chapters of Daniel have a lot of opposition in them, and they have a lot of opposition because of the faith that Daniel and his friends had, and they kept the faith, they maintained their faith, and then you study passages like Psalm 46 and verse 10, be still and know that I am God, I'll be exalted among the nations, I'll be exalted in the earth. Psalm 119.30 says, I've chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I've laid before me. John 8.24, I said that you'll die in your sins if you don't believe, if you don't have faith, you'll die in your sins. And then we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't have necessarily right in front of us everything that would just, oh, that makes sense. That's why it is that way. We walk by faith. And we, we don't know for sure that some of these things happen because we weren't there, but we have the faith that they happen because of the evidence that's been given to us. We didn't witness it, but we have the faith. And so maintaining our faith is something that has to be done because too many people are losing their faith today. How many parents are having conversations with ministers around this country and around this world about their children having left the faith, and when you really do an autopsy, of that death in that family because their child has left the Lord, they've gone back to sin and died again, we find out, oh, the parents were poisoning that child by not giving him a proper diet, not giving her what she needs, and not giving this child a steady dose of God. They were allowing them to pick worldly things. And mama and daddy were showing them that maintaining the faith wasn't important. You don't have to do that. No, you you have to do this if you're going to be pleasing to God. And too many people, and I think the pandemic's done this to us as well, we're going to have a lot of preaching and teaching to do when things get back to quote-unquote life as we once knew it or something close to it. And the issue is there's going to be a lot of people that we're going to realize we're not as strong as we thought they were. And that's going to be heartbreaking, but I can tell you the remedy is to have faith and to trust that no matter what happens— God has your back. God is in control, and he can take care of you, and we take care of ourselves. Don't get me wrong. I'm not not about to preach that we don't need a social distance or anything like that, but we understand that when it's time to come back, we're not going to find some excuse to justify our actions. We're going to trust in God because we love God enough to forsake this world, forsake all, and follow him. Amen. And, And you bring out a good point, and the Lord knows the difference between an excuse and a reason. You know, it may be the case that, that folks haven't been coming to worship service if you up and act up. Maybe they have a legitimate reason. Uh, but like you said, a lot of folks during this pandemic are losing their faith. And I'll tell you this, I've had a lot of brethren reach out to me, I'm sure you have as well, with that statement. I am struggling with my faith right now. Uh, the idea that, like you said, we thought we were strong. It may have been that their faith was linked to the church building. Uh, Their faith was linked to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If they could check those three boxes, hey, I'm faithful. 
And you realize when all this happens, okay, it's much, much more than that. And so maintaining our faith, and, and, and like you said, in the context of 2020, is extremely important. And I hope our listeners can gain encouragement from what we're discussing. Looking at these examples in Scripture of those who face something far worse than 2020, right. and yet they were right. able to maintain and overcome it. And, and it begins by maintaining our faith. And I appreciate that you mentioned there are things that we're still going to have some questions about, not completely understand, but... We understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. The evidence that has been presented gives us that, that faith that we need to maintain. And I'll share this before we move on to the second, the second word, is a quote from Mike Hickson. And I believe it was at the Spiritual Sword Lectureship. It has stuck with me ever since I heard it. He said, the trials of life can shake our faith, break our faith, or make our faith. And you know, the trials, the storms of life that we face. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to it? And so the, the whole thrust of this episode is to encourage our listeners to, to maintain it. Maintain mm-hmm. your faith. Don't, mm-hmm. let, don't let anything shake you or break you from keeping your trust in God. And so we can maintain our faith. But the second point we want to look at, the second word is that we need to maintain our focus. And so what passages or what examples come to mind there. Yeah, Luke 9:62 Jesus says no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what he's talking about is a, a farmer. This is from an unknown source. He's talking about this farmer using a plow on a field and the man has put his hand to the plow and he started but the goal is to make straight rows in the earth. And he does this by looking at a distant object, and Jesus creates this picture of a farmer who, rather than looking straight ahead at a distant object, is constantly looking back at something. And the Greek words for looking behind have the picture of constantly and continually looking back at things. It's not that he checks back every now and then. You know, when we're driving, we'll check back sometimes. We'll we'll do a quick turn with our head to see if a car is in the lane before we merge. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you were to take your head and just completely look behind you while you were driving down the road and hope you don't hit nothing and hope that you maintain the straight line of the road that you're supposed to be on. And the result of doing something like this when it comes to plowing is a crooked and curved row and a mess. And this man lacked focus. And you think about that idea of focus. I've, I've got a camera that we're using to look at each other while we're zooming for this podcast. And it's a it's just a little camera. But you've probably noticed as I've been talking, it auto focuses on me. And it, it changes while I'm speaking. If I get out of focus, it will put me back where I'm supposed to be. And what it how it does that is it fixates on one point. It's If it's on more than one point, it's out of focus. And when I get out of focus it gets back into focus. And if you think about that from a Christian's perspective, can you be focused on the world 50% and Jesus 50% and be in focus? And someone would say, well, no, obviously that, that's half and half. Okay, can you be focused on the world 1% and Jesus 99% and be in focus? The answer is no. And my sister-in-law, she'll point it out to me and I'll be like, wow, I, I, I missed that. But we'll watch TV or something, and she'll go, oh, it's, it's so slightly out of focus, and it's annoying me. And then I start to look, and I'm like, wow, she's right. It, it's just so barely, but you can tell. And that's the truth with the way we live today, too, is even if you're 1% out of focus, it'll eventually be seen. And typically speaking, it makes for a bad finished product. How many good movies or TV shows have been ruined and too much money's been spent to fix it, and you go, oh, that shot's out of focus. And there's a guy I watch on YouTube. I'll I'll just do a a little – it's kind of funny. His name is Zach Shomler. I don't know if you've ever listened to this guy or not. He's the strong opinion sports guy. And he's got a pretty good podcast, but one of his cameras is constantly out of focus. And I've stopped watching it on YouTube. I'll just listen to it on the podcast platform because I can't stand to watch it being out of focus. And so when you talk about maintaining your focus, if you're going to plow a field, look ahead. If you're going to serve Jesus, be 100% in. Completely focus on what he wants because no one can can multitask in Christianity. I, I'm a multitasker, and that, that works. That's just fine. I, I can do that, and it's easy for me. It's not easy for some. But I can't multitask my Christianity. I have to be completely focused on Jesus. Absolutely. You know, my, my mind goes back to the end of last year, uh, preparing my sermons for 2020. And yeah. I, I, I yeah. would say almost every preacher had it in their back pocket. I can't wait till 2020 so I can bring out 2020 vision. Well, 
that got flipped backwards, didn't it, as 2020 started? Th three months in, your plans for 2020 got, got turned around. So that's a perfect example of maintaining our focus. And, and you brought out a great point, and I wanted to hit on the same thing. Our, our focus being on the world, I wonder if it's been magnified since this pandemic. How much more we're thinking about the physical things or the here and now instead of the there and then. How right. much of our right. focus is on what's going on in the world and, and the political realm or with the, the mask or not the mask or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. ha have we lost our focus spiritually? Uh, you mentioned that passage in, in Luke 9. I love that passage. I also think about Matthew 6, 33. There, there's something to Jesus on that Sermon on the Mount coming to that point. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You maintain your focus is what he's saying. There, there are right. several passages that we've looked at earlier with Paul and Jesus that come to mind. We mentioned Philippians 3, 14 and following. I press toward the mark. What is Paul saying? I'm going to maintain my focus. I'm not going to lose sight of the goal. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Also, you mentioned Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We're looking unto Jesus. Keep your focus. Don't, mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. get out of step. Don't leave the race. You keep following his example, following in his steps, and that'll help you to weather the storm. And so we've noticed that we are to maintain our faith. We are to maintain our focus. But our third and final point is that we need to maintain our fruitfulness. And Michael, what comes to mind when you think about the word fruitfulness and what it means to maintain that? Well, fruitfulness, it's defined as producing much fruit, being a fertile tree or plant or land, uh, producing good or helpful results. You're productive. That, that You know, like uh, for you, the Braves, when one of their players has a really good night hitting, boy, it's been a fruitful night. And when my team goes to the World Series and loses two years in a row, it's been a fruitful year, but it's not been a successful year. And you think about that from that perspective, and so that's typically what we're talking about. And the third one is when, when someone has offspring. They've, they've had a lot of children. And so the first two is what we're really focusing on here, though. The, the New Testament often discusses the parallel between Christianity and fruit-bearing trees. Possibly, though, the most memorable one, or one of the many memorable ones, is Matthew seven fifteen and following, where Jesus is writing, or Jesus is speaking during the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How will you know them? By their fruitfulness. Now, that's the MJV, you know, the Michael Joseph version, but he says, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good, fr good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and therefore by their fruits you will know them. And then Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, gives us another in interesting depiction. This is a parable of a, a fig tree. And Jesus says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any cut it down, why does it use up the ground? But this man answers and says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, good. If not, after that you can cut it down. And of course, this parable is hinting at the destruction of Jerusalem. You have, there, there's a need to have a destruction, and someone might say, well, why did Jerusalem need to be destructed? Because it didn't maintain the relationship with God. You have Matthew 23 where Jesus is lamenting over the city, and he talks about gathering Israel as, as a hen would gather her chicks. And he says, I would have done that for you, but you would not come back to me. Just like Amos was talking about you. I, I was more than willing. You decided to pull away. And the Israelite people had this problem for centuries. Judges 21 and verse 25. In, that day, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so you talk about maintaining fruitfulness, and I think we've gotten it backwards in the church now and I don't think it's because we've been preaching or teaching this, but maybe we have people who just aren't listening, or maybe we have some places where they're not teaching it properly, but we've gotten to a point where we treat church more like a job. We show up, we do the bare minimum, we take vacations too, and we'll be gone for times, and then we'll show back up, and then we'll get back into the work of the Lord, and then we'll get a little burnout, and so we'll take a vacation, we'll stop doing some things, but we're still there, but we've just checked out mentally. And a preacher or the elders might say, hey, we're going to have a VBS. We're looking for teachers. I can't teach the kids. 
why, why not? Uh, I'm just not very good with kids. I've actually had people say that, and they have they have children. Not at Somerville, but I've heard of people who have told people in the congregation, I'm not good with kids, and they have children. And it's like, well, maybe we need to talk to somebody about that because I think if, you, if you're not good with kids, maybe you should go put those kids up for adoption or something, I guess. But you have this problem in the church of people saying things and not really meaning it. We talk about we'll work till Jesus comes, but really we put in there in the fine print, we'll work if it's something we can get behind and support and we're really good at till Jesus comes. It's not we'll do whatever it takes, we'll do whatever needs to be done, we'll be fruitful when we decide to be fruitful. And give you this example and then I'll throw it back to you. When I was in the 10th grade, I skipped 10 straight weeks of my history class. 10 weeks. And... uh Buddy of mine and I, we would just go to the theater. We'd go to the Performing Arts Center on campus. We'd go there. We'd go walk down to Taco Bell and eat lunch. We'd just do whatever we could to get away from that class for 10 straight weeks. I show back up, and it's time to take the final exam. And I've obviously missed the amount of days, you know, required, more than the amount of days required to, to be eligible to be exempt from it. And so I show up and the teacher looks at me and my buddy Blake and she goes, what are y'all doing here? And I said, well, we're here to take the final exam. And she said, well, uh, considering you guys have 99s in this class, you don't have to do that. And I said, I'm sorry, how in the world do we have a 99 in this class? We haven't been in this class for 10 weeks we only did eight weeks of the class, and we have a 99. And she goes, well, your grade in this class is based mainly on attendance. Well, what we would do is we'd show up to class, we'd have our attendance taken, and then we'd leave. And so by the numbers of what she had done, we were present. But we actually hadn't been in the class. That's not how the Day of Judgment's going to work. I actually decided, my buddy didn't, I was really mad at him, He decided not to take the test. I took the test. I bombed it. I failed. And I got out of that class with like an 82 or an 84. And I thought, that's much better than what I should have. So I'm just going to take that loss on the chin and be happy that I even passed. That's not how God's not going to look at us on Judgment Day and go, oh, well, you guys, you attended church, so that's enough. He's going to know whether we were fruitful or not. And fruitfulness doesn't, it's not determined by how much fruit you bear. Sometimes we get that mixed up in our minds, too. If one soul's worth the whole world and one soul's all you can ever bring to Christ, you've been fruitful. Now, whether or not you're able to continue to try also plays into that. You can't just say, well, I got my one soul, I'm done. You have to continue to push forward. But fruitfulness is not something where God expects you to come forward on the day of judgment before him and have thousands of people converted. It can be as simple as sharing a podcast, as sharing a blog that you've read, hoping that your your friends on Facebook or social media will see it and have something to discuss, and you think about that. There's a reason we're podcasting. It's not because we think so highly of ourselves, but it's what if this reaches somebody and they find the truth? Well, that's me and you being fruitful. And members of the Lord's Church can do the same thing. Elders in the Lord's Church can do the same thing. Being fruitful with the works they support, with the things that they do, the things that they maintain. Telling the congregation, follow us and we'll lead you into battle. And that's what we need more of in the fruitfulness category. Right. And I'm thinking at this point, we don't get a free pass because of all that's going on to not be fruitful in the kingdom. Uh, we still have the responsibility to do it. And you just mentioned a few of the ways that we can. You know, no, for a few months we weren't able to be here, but that doesn't mean that we just take a backseat. Christianity right, takes a backseat right. to our life. We, there's still things that, that we can be doing to bear fruit. You know, John fifteen eight, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so connected with bringing glory to God is bearing much fruit. And we need to be able to do that. I think about the blessed man of Psalm 1. Mm-hmm. He shall be like mm-hmm. a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. Why was he able to produce that fruit? Well, he forsook the way of the wrong. That's verse 1. In verse 2, he meditated day and night in the law of the Lord. So spending time in God's word and, and, and forsaking the things that, that are wrong will help you uh, to bear much fruit for God. By your influence on others, uh, you can bear much fruit. Also think about Second Peter 1, 5 and following. You have the Christian graces. You apply those eight things, and then you have 
if you do these things and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. You, you can be fruitful by applying these things to your life. And so if we want to weather the storm by maintaining the things that we've discussed today, specifically these three words, maintaining our faith, maintaining our focus, and maintaining our fruitfulness, that will help us no matter what life throws our way to bring glory to God. So Michael, I appreciate all of your study, all of your comments today. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but to our listeners, I hope that you've been able to be encouraged through this effort today. And before we close out, we want to leave, leave you with one piece of practical advice, one piece of, of advice that we can give you that may help you to weather the storm. So Michael, I want to start with you and then I'll, I'll finish this out. Well, maintaining our Christianity in today's world, it might seem impossible. So many things, sins really, pull us left and right, and the devil's doing such a good job. He's working overtime to try to get more and more people convinced to follow him instead of God. But God wouldn't put something on us that we couldn't be successful in doing and maintaining, and he knows we can maintain, Second Timothy 4, 6 through 8. In fact, he told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2, I'm going to make your head hard so you can deal with hard-headed people. And so God can do the same for us. And if someone like Paul, the main takeaway is if someone like Paul, a murderer and one of the chief prosecutors of the way, could become a Christian and maintain that to his death, so can we. The biggest question that's on us to answer is will we? That's right. It's a lot of time you know what to do, but are you willing to do it? So that's a great takeaway, uh, some great advice given. The one piece that I'd like to leave our listeners, especially those who are Christians, is to remember that living the Christian life is not about sinless perfection, but maintaining the faithful direction. And that's 1 John 1, 7 through 9. It's not about living a, a sinlessly perfect life. We know we're going to make mistakes, but it's about maintaining that walk. Keep on walking in the light. The blood of Christ will keep on cleansing you. And so all these things we've discussed today, I hope it will, will encourage you to maintain. Maintain your faith, your focus, your fruitfulness, Look at these examples we've discussed today through the scriptures and do your best as we, as Michael and I are going to strive to do as well, to apply it uh, to our lives, all to the glory of God. Michael, once again, thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And we hope that this episode in some way will help you to weather the storm. Thank you and God bless.